Hey, what's up? This is Matt Dietz, and this is None of My Business. This is the show where I get to sit down with creative, smart, and ambitious entrepreneurs who are in the middle of their journey. You know, there is no playbook for uh, a new business owner or a leader on how to do it well. So I wanted to sit down and build a library of stories and of successful people to come in and share how they did it. And that's what I've done. So welcome to the show. Today on the show, I have... Allison Pat, who is the president of Thomas Cuisine. I had a great conversation with Allison. She's so easy to talk to, so smart. She has such great experiences that have led her to the position that she's in today, which is leading a company that has 1,400 employees, and their territory is essentially like west of the Mississippi. So we talk about what they're doing at Thomas Cuisine. We talk about how uh, we trace her path on on how she got there, which was incredible. Um, she got passionate with hospitality early in her career and uh, has walked that path. We talk a lot about coming into a leadership role. Uh, how do you get some quick wins? How do you how do you earn some early trust. Uh, she offers a product that is more expensive than her competition and that she she has a, a heart in sales just like me. So we had a great conversation about how to really, um, how to sell a product that is is more expensive. So that was really, that was really fun for me. Talk about goal setting, talk about communication. How do you communicate in a company that big? You know, how do the people on the floor really feel heard and how do the real issues bubble to the top. And she just had great answers for all of these. So Allison, thank you so much for coming on. I think you, uh, you gave an incredible amount of value to us and uh, I appreciate you coming on. So let's get on with the show. Well, I am joined today with Allison Pat, who is the president and CEO of Thomas Cuisine. Hi, Allison. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. I'm excited to talk with you. All right. So I'm going to start with something nice and easy. So where are you from? And how did you get to Idaho? I love it. A softball. Yeah, um, right down the middle. <laughs> so uh, I was born in Fort Smith, Arkansas, wow. although I'm pretty sure I, I left three months in and never went back. So okay. uh, you have no memory. No memory. Okay. Uh, I lived in about six or seven states by the time that I went to college. So um, I chose to go as far from, at the time, home, which was Michigan. And uh, headed out to a, a small private school in San Diego, California. That's where I got my undergrad. Nice. And then I ended up heading back to Michigan, which I swore I would never do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did uh, my MBA at University of Michigan. Go blue. Oh, and that is our show, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> they have a great MBA program. They do. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of how I got to Idaho, though, so I was in Michigan. Um, we can talk more about that later, but. At the time, Michigan was home. Great job, great company. We were we were in a really good spot. But a, uh, a mentor of mine said, "There's this company out in Idaho, and I really want you to talk to them. They're looking for a new leader, and there's just something about it that I think would be a great fit." So I am embarrassed to say that I had to Google where is Idaho on yeah. the map, uh-huh. um, found it, and uh, uh, yeah, we came out. We did our, our first visit out here almost three years ago. My husband and I. And uh, just truly fell in love with not only the company, but the area, the climate, 
My husband can golf like 10 months a year. So for us, it was a win. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I have some similar path. I went to school in Michigan as well. I went to Western, go Broncos. Um, (laughs) But I always wanted to come out West too. And um, I took a job up at Washington State where my wife is from and she's from Idaho. And this has been home for 21 years now and we just yeah. I've lived a lot of places too and this is this is home for me now so Do you miss the mitten? <sighs> no, I'm 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 from Chicago, right? So I was <laughs> I, I was still when I went to college, I was still I was new to Michigan and so when everybody like, you know, the first week you're there, everyone's like where are you from? Where are you from? And everyone was throwing their hand up. I'm from here. I'm like, what are you guys doing? And I get it now. Like Michigan was awesome for me for, for the time. I have some good friends there and that's great, but uh, it's a good place to visit. That's what I'd say right now. So, (laughs) all right. So let's backtrack a little bit. Um, So tell me what, what is Thomas cuisine? Let's start there. Like what, what do you guys do? Yeah. Great question. So Thomas cuisine is a food management company. Uh, We are all about culinary. So we are the ones who provide food service for places like hospitals, um, senior living, CCRCs, so continuing care retirement communities, corporate dining locations. So uh, if Netflix or eBay says, hey, we want to do food service for all of our team members, we're the the provider who would come in and do that. And then as of last year, our newest endeavor is private schools. So um, K through 12 private schools, just such a such an area of need for great food. Yes. And really what makes us unique, in addition to providing on-site culinary services, we are a real foods, wellness-driven food service company. Thank you. Um, yes, right? Yes. Um, so for us, we believe that food not only should be delicious and nourishing, it should also be health-promoting. Um, what you put in your body, we all know, makes such an impact in your overall health. Um, and for me personally... That was a big mission that that I just was so attracted to when I met Thomas Cuisine. I have a son who is now 10 years old. He is nonverbal autistic and uh, really struggled with communication. And for us, the one thing that unlocked our family, our son, and communication was food. Wow. Um, so we believe in the power of food. We're a company that's harnessing that, that's really promoting that. Um, we're very mission-driven, and we're in about 12 states. 12 states. Yep. Are you primarily in the West, on the West Coast? Yes. So we are west of the Mississippi is probably the best way to describe it. Um, our core areas, though, in addition to Greater Boise, um, the Salt Lake area is okay. a big one for us. Uh, we do quite a bit of business in Washington, Texas, and California. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'd imagine that that is an exciting uh, place to work. I would imagine that there are some uh, pretty intense challenges in your <laughs> in your industry. Yes. I remember, you know, uh, there was a movement that's been going on for years about getting healthy food in these places. I mean, yeah. many of us saw Supersize Me and what that was. And I was in a high school, just, I spent a lot of time in high schools because I got kids in sports right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm spending Saturdays at the gym, you know, and you go out and you look at the vending machine and I'm like, why are there still cookies and Pop-Tarts yep. and pop in here? Like yep. what, why isn't there any movement going on? And I would imagine there's some politics involved and yep. possibly uh, it's probably mostly about money. So we're going to talk about that a little <laughs> bit later. So can we also <laughs> highlight that you said pop? You are from the Midwest. <laughs> I did. I said pop. <laughs> if I was from Texas, I would have said Coke, right? So yeah, that's uh, so I'm interested to hear. Yeah, because it's so important. It and is. like our children are in these schools. And it's like, we've known about these problems for so long. Like, why isn't there any movement? It, so yeah. it drives me nuts. But I'm interested to, to dig into that with you. 
All right. So um, how did you get here? What was the first job you had that kind of led you down this path? What did you mm. study? First of all, when you went to school in San Diego. Yep. I studied communications and PR. I'm pretty sure everybody thought that was a fake major. Um, turns out it was actually really useful I'll for bet. me. Um, but yeah, so that was my my major. I thought I would go into marketing. Okay. That was kind of the path I was on. Um, I ended up, my first job was actually with Martha Stewart out in New York City. That's right. Uh, and uh, I was in the kind of the ad sales area uh, doing some like advertising promotions, things like that. Um, What's and, Martha Stewart like? Uh, brilliant. Yes. Brilliant. Yes. <laughs> um, and you know, it's interesting. You think about being a female in leadership, man, she came up at a time. It was very different to be a female totally. leader. I think about the ways that she really did break the mold and, and kind of build her own path. That mm -hmm. was pretty exciting to see and yeah. interesting to, to view from my standpoint. Yeah. Um, a lot of things have changed since then. And, and I took a slightly different path than she did, but what did you um, learn? And that's when you were there, you know, what I learned specifically watching how she had built that company. Um, it was a much harder time. Yeah. to be a female leader. You had to conform to a, a more male-dominated leadership landscape, I believe. Um, what I really realized being there is I didn't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted to be authentic to who I am. I felt like I had unique gifts and a unique approach as a female leader. And I am so grateful to live in a time where that's embraced. And, and she didn't, yeah. right, when she was my age. Um, so all that said, I, the other thing I learned is I don't want to do ad sales. Um, it was a tough. really, it was a tough, Ugh. tough space. Um, and just frankly, didn't have the, the human interaction that I was craving. I really am service minded mm -hmm. and I felt like I didn't get to use that there. So, um, the real first job that kind of put me on the path, I worked at a resort in the greater San Diego area. So I moved back to San Diego, loved that area. And I worked for a hotel called La Berge del Mar. It's this beautiful, right on the water, boutique, high-end hotel. Nice. And I went there to to run a lot of their events. So um, kind of selling the events, executing them, and then being there when they actually occurred. And what I learned through all that is, first of all, I love food. I have mm -hmm. such a passion for food. Um, Where does that come from, um, do you think? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I don't know. I grew up with the Schwann man, yeah. you know, yeah. um, talk about not real food. I, I grew up with a lot of, uh, frozen cuisine. I think that was the time, right? That's kind of how we all ate at that point. Yeah. Um, and when I went out to San Diego, I started to be introduced to food in a way I had just never experienced it before. Sure. I didn't know that you could get a filet that, that wasn't brown all the way through. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Um, so I started hanging out with chefs and people who just cared a lot about food. I started meeting farmers and local purveyors and I was hooked nice. the second I, I got to be a part of that scene. You felt it. Oh, I felt it. Yeah. On yeah. a heart level. Mm -hmm. So, um, I fell in love with food, but I also discovered, um, I love hospitality. I love taking care of other people. Um, maybe that's kind of the mother in me, but I loved this idea that that you could really be there for somebody at a at a critical moment in their life. Um, you can make a difference in somebody's life, even if it was through um, a wedding or an event yeah. or something like that. In one day. In one day. Yeah. So uh, I did. I loved that that time period. I met my husband at that hotel. Just lots of good things. Um, from there, I, I got to work for Four Seasons Hotels. I was at the Lodge at Torrey Pines. Just Yay. epically beautiful. It is. Um, and the Farmers Farmers Open. <laughs> yes. Um, so 
That's uh, well. I want to thank you for because I had a chance to go down there a number of times. I've been down there six or seven times for that event, and it is just first class. Although I was at the first, I was at the first one in 2010, and oh, wow. um, all throughout the 2010s. And uh, so, thank you for for providing an incredible experience. It was, it's amazing. Some good food there, there, right? Very good food. <laughs> yeah, we love it there. So yeah, I just I, I really knew that was kind of my path. Hospitality really felt right. Um, I will also tell you that the hotel world can be difficult in terms of um, work-life balance. Sure. I loved it. I truly loved it. But I was working 12 to 14 hours a day, six and seven days a week. And again, loving it, yeah. like loving it. Um, however, once we had kids, um, that didn't feel like a super sustainable path for where I wanted to go and how I wanted to lead. So, um, I then made a transition over to a food service company, very similar to what I'm doing now. I, I didn't even know that existed. This right. idea that there were culinary companies a little bit more Monday to Friday. Um, you could build a career and still have that hospitality, make a difference in someone's life kind of approach. Great. Um, so that's really what led me, led me here. So what did you do? What was your position? What job did you have before you have the one today? Yeah, I was a divisional president. Um, so I kind of came up through that organization in the greater Detroit area. Um, I started in sales. Sales is still near and dear to my heart. I love growth and really building something everybody can be a part of. Everyone can find great joy in expanding. Um, so I came up through sales. I then switched over to operations and then oversaw both sales and operations for a division of the company. Wow. Okay. Well, you built this beautiful resume with all of this experience and this, uh, and Thomas Cuisine comes calling, right? So talk to me about what that decision was like, what, (laughs) and then let's talk about your entry into that company. So how did that, how did that position present itself? Yep. You know, um, what drew you to it? And then let's talk a little bit about, you know, how you, how you got started with them. So I remember, uh, again, a mentor had told me about this this opportunity. Um, Thomas Cuisine at the time had a wonderful long-term CEO and leader who was looking to retire. That was not a secret. It was kind of a long time coming. Um, different things had sort of postponed that. But this was 2020, so the start of the pandemic. Oh, my God. And they're doing a CEO search. Sure. I can't even imagine what it was like <laughs> oh to be on the board. Um, so so I got introduced to uh, actually a, a headhunter who was trying to find some, some strong candidates for the role. And I remember telling my husband I was going to do this phone call, and I said, honey, this will never go anywhere. Like, there's no way that I am what they are looking for. Um, but the first conversation happened and it was really wonderful. There was so much alignment. And then the second conversation happened and I was like, Oh my goodness, we're still talking. Yeah. So what's um, it like to go into a conversation and you're like, this is, this is just not a good fit based on whatever per- perceptions you had going into it. Yeah. And then you have the conversation and you <laughs> hang the phone up and you're like, Oh my God, I was totally wrong. Uh-huh. Like what, what did they present to you? How did that conversation go that made you really rethink the whole thing? Well, the word rethink is interesting. Um, What I was so interested in is they were not going to market looking for what every other food organization had. Um, You know, there's a list of the top 50 food management companies. It comes out every year. And I know every CEO at every one of those 50. um, And I don't, I don't match everyone on that list. Mm -hmm. So I thought surely they're going to look for somebody who has uh, more significant experience as a CEO, right? I was a divisional president. Mm -hmm. I hadn't done this. Um, I don't look like a lot of, of my peers. So 
I had my own baggage, I think, that I brought into sure. that conversation. And the more that I spoke with um, not only the person that they had kind of trying to find talent, but also the board themselves, that's when it really changed for me. What I heard was this desire to do business differently. This desire to find somebody who didn't actually come in with a bag of tricks, um, instead really wanted to roll up their sleeves, get to know the business, um, build the right team, and ultimately do something different in the food space. And that got me pretty excited. Yes, I'll bet. Um, And and the other piece I would say that that very quickly changed my mind, that real foods focus... um, was, was a big one for me. Again, on a, on a heart level, that was just really important to me and my family. That journey for us had started a year or two prior to that conversation. So um, I knew the power of food, but I didn't know food companies who knew the power of food, um, which is interesting yeah. and maybe a little screwed up, but mm-hmm. um, so many large food companies really are procurement companies. Um, they're rebate driven. This was an organization that wasn't. And then finally, I mentioned this was during COVID, Thomas Cuisine had taken a very specific stance. They did not let people go during COVID. And this was in a food industry that, I mean, it was decimated. Yeah. Um, when I look across those top 50 companies, I mean, the top three, they laid off tens of thousands of people. So to talk to an organization that said, you know what, we're privately held. We get to make our own decisions about what our, our p is going to look like, and we're going to keep people whole during this because they have been there for us when we needed them. Mm-hmm. I had never heard anything like that. And so while I was not looking and I was actually not eager to make a change at that time, um, that was such a compelling thing, especially at that moment that I told my husband, I have to keep, I have to keep talking to these folks. That's great. Gosh, there's so much there that (laughs) resonates with me. I know that I run my business very differently than my peers. And I do that because I want to, I want to be different. I want to find new ways. I want to, I don't want to live inside the box, you know? And so, um, and I love that. I look for it. I seek it. So I totally understand. And then the other thing is like, you're taking an interview and you're not even interested in really necessarily leaving. (laughs) And I was taught that too, like never close a door. If someone walked in here today and said, hey, Matt, I got a job opportunity for you, as much as I love what I do and I'm good at it, like, I'd listen to them. Mm-hmm. I would absolutely listen to them. And if I yeah. ended up having a conversation like you had, then you're like, uh-oh, you know, like, yeah. maybe maybe this is going to work or something like that. So That's I think right. some great lessons in there. So you take the job. Yes. And you uproot your entire <laughs> life and you move to Idaho after you Googled where you where it was, right? So uh, so you land here, you know, you get settled. I want to talk to you a little bit about coming into a role like you're coming into. You're replacing mm-hmm. somebody who has been there for how long? Gosh, um, decades. Um, not necessarily all of all of that time in the CEO role, but but he really grew through the company and um, you know had led for yeah decades of yeah. the company's history. Tough, big shoes to fill. Yes. I would imagine enormous. Right? Yeah. So so my question is like, how do you how do you come into a role like that and get some quick wins? You know, yeah. how do you earn some early trust? Um, yeah. I'm, every situation is different, I'm sure. It's my understanding that you did have some transitional help with this person, which, and I think you said earlier that like the relationship you had with him yeah. was was outstanding, and so what a gift that was. But talk to me a little bit about what your transition was like yep. coming in, so that you could come in 
you know, and, and get some early wins and earn some quick trust. Well, as you said, I was so fortunate to get to spend about three months with my predecessor, Mark. Um, and that was such a gift. Um, I hope one day I can be Mark to someone else because, uh, that made a, a significant difference in the way that I was received. How so? Um, so he literally got on planes with me for three months and oh met our team, met our clients and to be able to be linking arms in front of those, those critical stakeholders in our business, both internal and external. And for him to basically say, you're going to love working with her. She oh, gets it. So um, good. He helped identify me as, as his backfill. And so I think because of that, he had credibility and he shared that credibility with me in a way he did not have to. Um, and I learned so much from that transition that, like I said, I hope I carry forward. I mean, he bought you years of time He did by doing that. And he that's did. just incredible. What a, what a great way to oh. onboard. So you don't have to go in he just made it easier for you. You didn't have yeah. to work for it. It was it was given to you by this person who had already earned that trust from all of these people that you needed to earn it from. That's right. He yeah. eased that path for me in a really significant way. Um, but beyond that, um, my number one goal the the whole first year was be in the field, be in the field, be in the field. Uh, I think I traveled about eighty five to ninety percent of that year. Oh my god! Um, I now have status in every airline, um, but uh, very quickly. I, I mean, I lived on the road, so to me that was so important. I did not know how to sit in an office in Boise, Idaho, make decisions for an organization that I did not understand. So, so much of this was having dinner with our team members, having dinner with our clients, working on the line, being in the dish room, listening, doing more town halls. Um, now in some ways that's hard to do because it comes sometimes as, as a sacrifice to, to doing a lot of change. So instead of coming in and making a lot of the change that quite frankly, I wanted to make that kind of had to go on the shelf for a minute. Yeah. And instead it was about building trust. And you said that earlier, this is a company that, that had so much trust in, and again, my predecessor, so much trust in the founder, the owner, the family that owns that I did not want to skip that step. I knew it wouldn't work. Yeah. I was going to ask when you're going out on the road in the first year, you must have, so, so were you brought in to kind of keep things going the way they were, or were you going to? Were you brought into kind of like, all right, we, we want to keep these things, but we have to fix these things. And that's why you're here. Like, what was your, what was presented to you? Like, this is what we need from you. Yeah. I think it was a little bit of both. And, um, I think as a board and I, I put myself in that as, as a member of the board, I'm not sure we knew at that time exactly what this was. Um, again, right at the beginning of the pandemic, everything was changing. Yeah, you have a whole new set of problems. You have a whole with. new set of problems. So uh, there was a beautiful legacy, a beautiful history that we wanted to carry forward. And we knew we had to do things differently. Yeah. So it was an interesting time to go in and decide what are the things that have to remain? How do we keep all the best parts of Thomas Cuisine? And also how do we leverage this new moment in a, in a very unique way, how do we um, actually lean further into our real foods mission at a time that I believe the world was waking up to the health crisis? Right. So um, a little bit of both. Going out again first year, a lot of it was um, taking copious notes, listening to the feedback, trying to find themes and trends, not kind of those one-off problems. Mm -hmm. um, and so by the end of that first year, I really did have a pretty darn good sense of what was happening. Where did we have vulnerability? Um, where did we have opportunity? And you talk about quick wins. 
some of that was also, okay, there's some very simple things that we needed to professionalize or change based on the pandemic. Um, so to be able to pull that leadership team together, identify a few of those and, and I'm going to call them low hanging fruit, right? We didn't have to get into the meaty stuff right away. Yeah. Let's go after that low hanging fruit. Let's get a couple quick wins. Um, we did grow the business. We added some really key clients in that first year. And I think a lot of that just built additional trust and credibility that I needed going into what ended up being a big year of change year two. Okay. Well, let's talk about goals a little bit. Um, Goals are important for every every business. I have goals, and yeah. larger companies have goals. We got goals for families and stuff like that. But it's also a term that's get, that gets thrown around. I don't think a lot of people know how to set proper goals, or to chase them, or to hold themselves accountable. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what kind of goals were presented to you. What kind of goals did you come up with? Mm. Um, how did you plan on achieving them? And then how do you know what's working, what's not, and what? isn't working yet, you know, but, but will work. How do you determine like, well, there's, I'm curious on what you have to say about, Ooh, about a that. Lot to unpack. <laughs> a lot to unpack. Um, so in terms of goal setting at this organization, probably more than any, our goals truly are rooted in our mission. Everybody's got a mission statement on a wall somewhere mm-hmm. for us. It is so much more than that. So, um, truly we spend a lot of time really getting clear on the mission expanding this, this thing we call real foods, really driving these very genuine relationships with our team members and our customers and our clients. So we get really clear on that. And then we start to, um, really pull in the insights about the business, the landscape in which we operate and understand kind of a ground up approach of what is achievable, where do we really want to play and how are we going to win? Right. So that's kind of our strategic framework that we use when setting goals. Okay. Um, we go through an annual process of that goal setting, that strategic goal setting. Um, and what I'll say is we are again, very fortunate and blessed. We're privately held. Mm-hmm. So I do not have the same external pressures and goals, so to say, mm-hmm. um, of, of, uh, a, a publicly traded company with that in mind, I have had the opportunity to work with an amazing group of leaders, come back to the board with what we believe are the right goals. And for us, a lot of times when you talk about goals, those are measurables. Those yes. are things like at what rate do we want to grow right. for us? We have decided to be very picky and very intentional about that growth pace. We have seen organizations, and I've been a part of them, that get, um, what do you call it, ahead of your skis? Sure. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. you you put these goals out there, you grow 20% a year, and you can't keep up, and you start losing clients and customers. Right. We very clearly decided that was not gonna be how we were gonna grow. So we took a more conservative pace to start. We decided what was an ideal client, what does right client, right terms look like for our business, how big is that pie, and at what rate could we keep up with it? So we did a lot of intentional goal setting regarding that, um, and, and because of that, we have been able to bring on the right new partners, the right new clients um, that have stuck and quite frankly have helped us expand our mission. Beyond the measurable sales side of things, we've also had a lot of goals around our people, um, developing our people, making sure that our um, our team, because they truly are a team, not just a workforce, are, um, are being taken care of at a time that I believe that matters more than ever. Yep. Again, getting ahead of your skis, if you don't have the right people in place and you don't have a dedicated team marching towards that goal, 
good luck sales team. <laughs> so let me ask you this. I'm going to go off the page a little bit, yeah. but I'm curious. I agree with you when it comes to creating a workplace that people want to come to. Culture is another term that gets thrown around a lot. And yes. it's something I'm very passionate about. Even though my team is very, very small, I've created a culture here that I'm very proud of. Um, but in a business like yours, where you want to provide people a place to work where they feel passionate about coming in and um, they find value in their work and... I'm, I'm wondering what kind of things you've done or implemented to create a culture where people want to work there and are proud yeah. to work there. And the only, I tell a story where I've, I worked in one company years ago and it was, I, I rented cars mm-hmm. for enterprise, you yeah. know, and it was a crappy job. But for a year I worked in a branch where I had like one, some of the most fun I had in my entire life. I had a group of people that I worked with. We had so much fun. We worked long hours. It was outstanding. We gave each other a hard time, but it was all in good fun. And we performed at a really high level based yeah. on the metrics. Then I got transferred to another branch where everybody I worked with had one foot out the door and it was hell. Like uh-huh. I, it was miserable. It was the same job, yep. but but what I experienced personally was viscerally different in, yes. in, each, in each space. And so I'm wondering what kind of things that, uh, that you do to create a workplace for your people that make them running to work every day, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I can take no credit for what I'm about to describe. Um, it's all, all those who came before me. But I walked into something that was pretty special. And uh, you kind of just described a lot of it. We very intentionally hired managers and leaders that give a darn about people. Um, at the end of the day, that was our key criteria. If you're going to be a manager, you have to actually care about people. Have you learned how to identify that truly? Because the interview process yes. is another thing that drives me nuts because people lie to your face in an interview. So like, <laughs> I really love people. Like everybody says that. It's a terrible you know? proxy. Oh. Interviews are a terrible proxy for actual performance. So what would you tell someone who is like really looking for someone who really cares about people? How do yeah. you tell? So so we've kind of used the, I believe it's Lencioni or Lencioni. I'm probably mis- misstating that. Um who said hungry, humble, and smart are the three criteria. And we've really used that from a hiring standpoint. We have very specific questions and behavioral assessments that try to look at, are you hungry? Are you humble? And are you smart? And that humble piece is probably one of the most critical in that mix right now. Um, so yes, we, we definitely have taken a lot of time to discover how do we, how do we hire well, and then how do we use these wonderful players that we bring in to refer other great team members to us? Um, but truly we believe if you have a manager who cares about you, who knows your name, who knows the name of your kids, who's going to give a darn about what's going on in your life, it makes all the difference. Um, and so that is the cornerstone of what we have built and what we are trying to build as we go forward. That said, there's also some very unique things that we do as a company that I believe have really fueled that already existing local culture that that's driven by the manager. Um, we are an organization that profit shares. So again, we're privately held. That's something that the family has done for, I mean, years and years, this idea of giving back to the people who actually make the business happen. Um, that's pretty powerful and Mm -hmm. it really isn't even about the dollars. It's about the message of you matter ownership. Yes. And, Mm -hmm. and you get, you get a stake in this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, beyond that, we do things like every new manager who comes on board because I described how important that role is. We fly them all into Boise. So, um, just about every month or two, we have a group of about 10 to 12 new managers 
and they come in, they spend two or three days here in Boise. Uh, we all go out as leaders with all of those team members. We've got, you know, we have dinner, we have, um, just time together mm-hmm. to really get to know each other and talk about that thing that we call culture. Yep. Um, and then once a year, we bring everybody together for an annual meeting. And normally that takes place here, but it's games, it's fun. It's also the state of the company. It's thanking our team members. And that's another big thing I will tell you. We don't have leaders. Our executive team doesn't sit at a desk. Um, we are out in the field. Yeah. And our first stop when we get to a location is to go into the kitchen and say thank you to our team members. It's not to go see the client first. Right. Um, so that idea of really thanking the people who make our business happen, treating them so well that they're going to treat our customers well. Um, it's, it's not rocket science, no, right? We all not. hear that, but... Um, at the end of the day, there are sacrifices in that there's financial sacrifices, there's time sacrifices, but we have found that when we do that, well, we've created a culture that I believe people are clamoring to be a part of. Yep. I love all of that. So thank you for <laughs> sharing that. And it's much, and you say it's sacrifices. I don't, I wouldn't even say it sacrifices because you're, you're keeping them longer, you know, yes. and they're giving better service. And so it's really an investment, you That's know, the right where they're, if you can keep an employee for six years instead of three, you know, or 10 years instead of five, it's just, so much good can come from, You're from right. all of that. It's a better way to describe yeah. it. And I didn't mean to correct you. It's just no, what I, I love it. Yeah. All right. So what's, uh, let's talk about communication since we're kind of on this roll and then we're going to go to sales. So for communication, how do you effectively communicate? How many, how many employees do you have? 1400 14 that's a lot of employees it is so how do you effectively communicate in a company of that size when you're on the top you know how do you know what you're hearing are the real issues from the bottom I kind of know the answer but I'm gonna make you say it anyway yeah and then what about how how do you make sure that the people you know in the field you know are being heard there's so I mean this game of telephone can go horribly wrong Mm -hmm. you know in a company like of that size so what are you doing to make sure that you know the messages are being heard and um, they're being taken care of yeah this is an ongoing focus and challenge so I'm not going to tell you that we're to the finish line of this one I'm pretty sure we never will be um, especially as we're we're ever growing. And as I mentioned, 1,400 team members across 12 states. So you can't just get everybody to you know join in a get warehouse. The table. And, yeah, right. you can't do that. So we've taken a variety of tactics to, to try to do this well. The first I've already described, I'm out in the field. Right. So there's something that I find pretty freeing about cutting sometimes through all of the layers yes. and just saying, hey, Tim, who's been a dishwasher with us for four years, what would make your life better? What drives you crazy? Why do you stay at Thomas Cuisine? Getting those answers and finding themes. Again, I try not to overreact to one comment. Um, Finding themes really has helped me get a sense and a pulse of what's going on. Outside of that, we do weekly town halls. And so I require that every one of us as a leader takes a month each year, and some of us have two months, where every week we lead that town hall. So um, it's a way that we update everybody in the field on what's going on throughout the business, new growth opportunities, new partners, um, new people initiatives going on. We also allow them to give us feedback. And so those have been really, really powerful um, opportunities. Um, second, we do an employee survey. I know everybody does, but we try to take it really seriously. Um, we really ask for the true feedback. We actually keep it anon- anonymous, excuse me. Um, so that's also been helpful for just gathering themes, kind of reinforcing where do we need to be spending time and energy. 
And then we have purposely not added too many layers. So what I mean by that, um, actually our founder in the founder's vision, our founder Thad Thomas has since passed, but he, he drafted a beautiful document of his vision for the company. And one of the things he says in it is he doesn't want bureaucracy. He doesn't want a lot of red tape. God bless him. Um, yes. And so we've really taken that to heart. So there aren't 16 layers between me and Tim, the dishwasher, who's been right. here four years. And we've done that very purposely to make sure that folks really do have a voice. Um, I do not only one-on-ones with my team, I also do what I call skip level connects so that I'm understanding our district managers. What are they seeing, feeling? They're the ones who are truly leading our field teams. Um, what are their themes? What are the things that they see in their own regions and areas? So it's a lot of different things. Um, and then finally, I have found that the more approachable I can be, the more that I actually want the feedback, the more I get it. So with my own team members or those skip levels, I use something called start, stop, keep. And so I'll say, what should I start doing? Or we as an organization, what should we start doing? What should we stop doing? And what do you want us to keep doing? Oh, I like that. That framework has been so powerful to hear, especially what do they want you to stop doing? Right. And when they tell you, and it's real uncomfortable the first time somebody answers that, (laughs) if you just celebrate the heck out of that answer, they'll keep coming back and giving you that real feedback. That's awesome. So for the town halls... And these surveys, I'm yeah. curious, who's invited? To, mm-hmm. Who's invited to the town halls? Let's start there. I'm curious. Yep. So uh, anyone who has an email address basically with us, so that's primarily managers and directors and whatnot, um, typically will join. That said, we record every single week and we actually save them to an area that anyone in the company can access. Are they highly suggested or are they mandatory to attend? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to go with highly suggested, um, because life happens, you know, we're not going to ding somebody if they have a client event that they need to be attending, but we really do encourage. And for the most part, we get that, that, um, that real participation. The other way that we do town halls is we do them in person out in the field. Those are not every week. Those are less frequent, but that's where we can get everybody together in a room in a region all of our team members and say, here's what's going on. It's kind of a roadshow. Yeah. And it also allows us to seek feedback in person. Okay. Um, so that's a broader audience. All right. So I've been involved with some organizations that do similar things. Mm-hmm. You know, they send out the surveys and they do the webinars and they get in front and they talk and mm-hmm. you, you give the feedback and stuff like that. What do you do to make sure they're being heard? Because a lot of times you can have a town hall or you can give surveys and people have things that they need to get off their chest or some real issues. If those things aren't uh, changed or addressed, addressed. then you're... People are going to stop coming and people are going to stop giving answering surveys. You're like, why am I going to answer this survey if I tell you what I'm going to think? And like, you guys just blow me off and things like that. You are right. So what kind of things do you do to, to make sure that they are being heard um, and that that the proper change happens at the right time. It's all about rounding back. Yeah. So, um, for example, in one of our recent, uh, team member surveys, we had heard that a lot of people were looking, um, for a new benefit. So short-term disability was something we didn't offer at the time. And people were like, Hey, this is something I need, right? I'm, I'm looking to start a family or, or whatever the things may be. This is something I'm looking for from my employer. And people were very vocal and did a great job of describing the whys to me. Um, so we assessed it, we reviewed it, we added it there you go. and then we came back and said, Hey, this many of you brought this up. Here's the why that you described. Here's the why that we felt. And here's what we're doing about it. Now, do we address every single thing 
publicly, no. Um, but when we have themes, when we have that kind of idea, um, absolutely. The other thing that I have found to be very helpful at Thomas cuisine, we have an integrity hotline and it's actually a, a very broadcast. We make a big deal about it. We make sure every new team member knows about it. If there is something that isn't going right, if you see mistreatment, if you don't believe we're living up to our values, we make it very clear that you can anonymously call or not anonymously and um, talk to a third party about what's going on and they will get the right people involved. So that way those things get responded to right away throughout the year instead of waiting for a survey to say, hey, by the way, I have a manager who mistreats my colleagues. We never want to hear that on a survey. We want to hear it the first time that ever occurs. Um, And like I said, that's actually been a really successful channel for us to snuff out if something isn't going well. And we always round back with the person if they allow us to. Great. Um, what about if something, one last question in this, cause I think it's important. What if you're hearing some noise and there's a common theme that's that you're hearing, but it's just not possible for you guys to make that change either like right now yeah. or, or it just doesn't, it, it will never make sense. Like yep. they're like, we need to get out of hospital, you know, something, yeah. something ludicrous or something like that, where, where everybody's like, we need to get out of this space because of a, y, a B and C, yep. you know, what if, uh, that's something that, you know, we're that you're absolutely not going to do. How do you, what do you do with something like that? You tell them. Yeah. So it sounds like such an obvious answer. No, that's what I was hoping for. But you know, as an organization, we've really staked our reputation on transparency with our clients. I want to be known as the transparent employer to our team members too. So sometimes that means getting in front of the team and saying, we screwed up. Sometimes it means getting in front of the team and saying, I hear you. I love what you're asking for. I love the why, and I can't do that yet, and here is why. Um, I have found that we've got a team that gives you so much grace and is so supportive if you will just be honest about what's going on. Isn't that just true in general? so true, yeah. (laughs) Well, I love what you're doing. I know part of culture is giving people a voice, um, acting on it when possible. I mean, that's another way that you give people ownership, you know, not just by yeah. profit sharing or giving benefits by, but if somebody, a lot of the things that I've implemented in my company, um, weren't my idea, you know, they were brought by an employee and then to, to, yes. to implement something that was brought by someone else and to use it and to, um, help you grow or to help you be more efficient. Like how much pride, you know, do they take in something like that? That's it's, right. It's really awesome. Well, and quite frankly, most of the best solutions in the business come from the front lines. Right. We can't be blind and think that we know everything. That's right. right? Yeah. You got it. All right. So let's talk a little bit about sales. Excuse me. Something that is uh, near and dear to both of our hearts. That's right. So you sell a product um, that's very important that you believe in incredibly, um, but it comes with challenges on the sales side because Mm -hmm. it's significantly more expensive than what uh, maybe other companies are using. So easy, you know, the question is like, how do you sell a product that's, that's a lot more expensive? Um, Cause that's something all salespeople have to deal with that. We have to deal with it in my industry. Yes. We talk a lot about selling value. I think that's too vague, you know, and I, yes. I know it's going to be different for each industry, but like, mm-hmm. how do you sell value in your company? How do you teach yeah. it? And how do you get it done? Yeah. Um, uh, such good questions. First and foremost, and I, I probably already said this, but 
our market size is smaller. We know that. So we are not a solution for everyone. We have to get really clear on that before we ever start selling. Yes. Um, because again, there are large food organizations out there who have a solve for everyone. They, you know, they really are a, a cost competitor. Um, we get that. We need that in the world, I'm sure, but that's not who, who we are. Um, in terms of selling, what I will say is we very specifically go after partners who see food as part of their own value proposition. So here's what I mean by that. If there is a hospital who believes that by serving great food, they can reduce readmissions and that helps their bottom line, we're all in. Absolutely. If they believe that doing an incredible um, culinary experience in their doctor's lounge will keep their doctors happy and working there, man, we're all in. Yes. Um, so I find that when a, a client is only looking at the price of the food, we likely are not going to be the right partner. When they are looking at the overall value to their organization, that's where that value word comes yeah. in, um, that's where we start to have some really interesting dialogue. And we've gotten pretty good at sussing this out fast. Good. Um, so I'll say that you know, in a, in a very quick bit of time, if you talk about what keeps you up at night, tell me about your organization, tell me about your hospital, your senior living, or, you know, how, how do you see food playing a part of, of your overall experience to your team members, to your customers, those answers are going to very quickly validate whether or not we have a true opportunity to make an impact with that partner. Um, and you know, corporate dining is similar too. right now. We all know the challenges many organizations would like to bring people back in person, but they're struggling to do it. Mm -hmm. Food is a lever to actually create community, to create those casual collisions that for so many businesses have actually driven innovation. Yep. Um, those are the kind of dialogues that we want to have. If it's, can you tell me the cost of the carrot versus that cost of the carrot? Um, we're just not the right, we're not the right provider. Right. Um, but I will say that with the right partners, we're actually not the most expensive option. We probably are the cheapest option when you look at the overall return to the organization, but it has to be that right fit. Yeah. So what kind of data do you present in a sales call or yeah. a meeting where um, they're interested in what you have to say? What kind of data do you put down and say, like, look, I know that this might look more expensive, but it's really not. It's actually mm -hmm. going to save you this over five years or 10 years or whatever. Like what, what do you present to them? Yeah. So I'll give you a recent example. We had a, um, I guess a sales presentation, I would call it first. I'm going to tell you, we're not actually like a sales organization. Um, we don't do fancy selling. We are a make it happen organization. Yeah. So 90% of our new business over the past five years, I just did this math. 90% was either growth on our existing business or a client saying, hey, I want to take you somewhere else with me. Okay. That's pretty powerful. Absolutely. That means that we're growing through the way that we operate. So anyway, we were sitting down with a potential um, client. And after we you know, went through a couple of those slides, everybody does, we're so great, yeah. right? <laughs> I finally turned to him and I said, listen, everyone's going to tell you that they're great. Everyone's going to tell you that it matters and they drive value, as you said. What a, what a term, what mm -hmm. a vague term. Um, but we want to talk about what we've actually done. So I handed it right over to our head of uh, healthcare operations, and he walked through six recent examples of when he came in with the right partnership, what he did in terms of steps, and then what did we deliver in terms of data. And so, for example, um, uh, nurse turnover went down by X because yeah. we implemented Y. Um, you know, readmissions went down by X because we implemented Y. How do you get that data? Do you know? Like, yeah. do you go back? You must 
stay dialed in with them we with do. some of these metrics, which is interesting um, and important. Um, but I'm curious, like, are you just connected with HR and be like, so how's your turn- turnover been? Or, you know, what, how do you get that? Yeah. So again, comes back to having the right partners mm-hmm. where we're not a vendor, we're a partner. Um, when that happens, our teams actually work in conjunction to say, what are the things that would be most impactful for you, client? If we get this right, what do you want to see? Okay, we want to see turnover reduce. Uh, we want to see you know this kind of diagnosis go down, whatever it may be. And then we all start tracking those every single quarter, and we come back together in what we call a strategic alignment session with the client, Great. and we report out on that data. Talk about having accountability. That's right. Right? That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. Um, cool. Let's see next. I was, let's see. Um, are there different challenges, you know, working with a family in, in, mm. a, in a family business? Um, what are the pros and cons? Yeah. So, so I've worked for a few different privately held family run organizations. And I would say on the whole, yes, there can be challenges. Now I'm going to brag on us a little bit. Yeah. I've never worked for such an incredible family ever. I mean that, um, I don't know if they'll ever listen to this or not, I but so. I will tell you, <laughs> but I will tell you, um, we have such a supportive ownership group. Um, and I say that not only in that they let us do the work that needs to happen. Um, but they are also there through the good and the bad. Again, you're going to go through seasons as a business and they very much believe in our mission. They very much believe in taking care of the team, even in challenging moments. And that's just, just been so inspiring to me. Um, the other thing that I think uh, that the Thomas family does so well is they find those those opportunities to really help you shape the vision, shape the strategy, but they also let you figure out the method, the how. Okay. What I think is so challenging in some family-run businesses is um, the how can be very dictated. Um, there, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of personal connection. Anytime an entrepreneur creates something, Again, of course, there's this personal connection to the people and the ways that the business has been has been developed. I am so impressed that the family that I um, have the opportunity to serve says, listen, yeah, we've done it this way, but we are not tied to that way. If there is a better way to achieve what we've all agreed we want to achieve, let us support you. Let us fuel that. Um, I think that's fairly unique and, and pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I would say across the board has been such a joy for me working for privately held family run companies. Um, you do get to make your own path. Um, again, I said it before, there is something about having external stakeholders that really changes the game. You have to weigh everything against that return. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Obviously, providing return to even our shareholders is very important to me. But there are moments you might make a quarterly sacrifice or investment for a long-term sure. payoff. We have the ability to play that that long-term game and not cut out our legs from under us yeah. just to make a quarterly number. Um, so I think that's something I, if, if people haven't worked for a privately held family-run business, man, I, I am a huge supporter of doing yeah, so. Outstanding. You mentioned something earlier that I'm curious about. You you have a board. Yes. And you're on the board. Yes. Is that unique? Huh. Uh, well, I don't want to say it's unique. Uh, I think in some instances, that's how it's structured and others it isn't. Um, for me, it's it's been a nice 
interesting thing to play kind of both sides of that. Obviously I serve at the pleasure of the board. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully I'll never have to vote myself off, but, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, It'll I, never be unanimous. <laughs> <that's right. laughs> but, um, to also have a voice on that board has really mattered to me when I was coming here again, that was important that I knew I would be part of truly shaping the vision, not just being handed the vision and executing it. So I am very grateful that they allowed me that that space to be a part of that vision creation. How big is your board? Um, right now, there are four of us. Um, and uh, we have an amazing board chair, a female board chair, which for me was just a really wonderful example to have on the board and um, really spoke to, I think, some of the values of the family. Um, and then we also have one of uh, the family members is on the board representing the family. Sure. And then we have one other external um, board member who just brings a wonderful consulting perspective to that table. Great. All right. This is going to lead me to my last question. Yes. All right. So my wife owns a small business, um, and I've watched her overcome challenges her whole career um, due to the fact she's a woman, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I'm curious on what challenges you've had in your role as being a woman. You know, what would you tell, you know, a promising young leader who's female uh, how to navigate, you know, this space as, you know, she goes through the ranks? Um, Mm -hmm. I feel bad that we even have to address this because like you mentioned earlier, Martha Stewart grew her company in a, in a very, very different climate and we're making great strides, but I I'm fully aware that we're not there yet. So I want to hear your insight on, you know, what your path has been like, any advice that you would give to somebody who's, who wants to be, you know, in a, in a leadership position like you, what kind of challenges are there? How do you overcome them? How do you do it? Yeah. Ooh, so much, so much there. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Uh, no, it's good stuff. Um, so first, yes, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that, that we are where we should be yet. Well, I think we are making incredible progress just across the business world. I am mm-hmm. delighted with where we're headed. Um, I still walk into rooms. Um, not that long ago, I was in one mm-hmm. where people turn to me and say, Oh, great. Can you bring in the coffee? Oh my God. And I'm like, Oh, darn it. Darn it. Um, <laughs> That said, a couple things that have helped me. First, I try not to come in with a defensive posture. I know there was probably a time that you had to armor yourself to walk into a room of peers. Mm -hmm. I don't feel that way. I actually feel by coming in warm, open, approachable, truly being me, um, I actually get to where I want to get faster than if I came in ready for ready for yeah, war, right? Horns, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so I think how you approach it matters. Um, second, I have had incredible examples and mentors. Not all have been women. Um, I've had amazing men in my life who have helped me find the way to be me in a room that doesn't look like me. Yeah. Um, and I know that's not unique to women. Obviously, there's a there's a lot of folks who feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, But I said it before, and you just said it again, folks like Martha Stewart really did have to come in and kind of conform to to trying to be something maybe they were or were not. I actually feel like um, the past, especially three to five years, we are now embracing things like vulnerability and leadership, right? Brene Brown really brought that forward. Um, I just read an article, I think it was Harvard Business Review, put out an article that said during the pandemic, from a data standpoint, female leaders actually drove better outcomes for their businesses. That didn't surprise me. Yeah, it wouldn't Um, surprise me either. Yeah, there's something around, and I don't like to make broad uh, categorizations, but 
for a lot of us as women, um, we do perhaps approach things with a different level of empathy or um, emotional, so to say, leadership. Mm-hmm, sure. um, and and I think that actually worked in a time when people were were really struggling. Probably needed um, it. Needed that, yeah. right? Um, so I think that's a big piece. Um, another thing I would say uh, for me, I really struggled with how to do this thing that we call balance. Um, what? How can I be a mother to my two boys, uh, a wife to my husband, and also a leader of a very large company? Um, I remember when I found out I was pregnant, going in to talk to my boss at the time, not not at my current company, a while back, and apologizing, first of all. Yeah, I'm um, sorry. And telling them, gosh, don't worry, I'm only going to take a couple weeks. I look back and I just cringe. Yeah. I'm so frustrated I did that. Um, but now I feel so encouraged that there is a way to do all those roles well. Um, and for me, you know, I, I hearken back to, uh, I think it was Ruth, uh, uh, Bader Ginsburg who said home was always a place of respite for work and work was always a place of respite for home. And for me, that has been true when you love what you do and you do create the right boundaries, you can come to work and feel so filled, right? My cup gets filled at work. And right when I just want to lose my mind, I head home and I get my cup filled at home. Um, So I would encourage people to realize you do not have to sacrifice family to lead a company. You don't have to sacrifice leading a company to have a family. Um, And I feel like that's being talked about more and it's it's a little bit more accepted at this point. Um, So more than anything... um, I don't think it would be different if it was a female or a male, but somebody looking to step into this role, I would say, number one, um, walk in with some humility. Realize you don't have all the answers. You're not going to. Build a team around you who is so much smarter than you. Mm-hmm. Um, but second, know your business. Yes. Be out in the field. Be really well prepared in every setting you're in. Um, to me, I have found that while I might not look like all of my peers, based on my age, based on my gender, If you show up and you are a great, humble leader, you know your business like nobody else, and you are driving results, that trust and respect is earned. It does come. Uh, It just might take a minute longer. Yeah. Gosh. Thank you for all of that. Um, Yeah, there was a period of time where I think there was a generation who was looking to, in the job field, at least this is what we saw when we were hiring people of a certain age and they would come in and we read articles and there was research that said that, um, you know, they came in and they kind of demanded the respect of their peers Mm. immediately, you know, without proving anything, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're like, well, and they're, you know, asking for raises right away and more time off or, um, and, and almost demanding the respect of, of everybody around just because they got the job and there wasn't any of the work that was done yet. They're like, I did the work. I got the job. You know, they thought that what that was it. Yeah. And that wasn't a good that wasn't a good experience for for us when we had people that were working for us that were like that. And so what you said, what you know, putting the work in, doing your research and humility, yeah. like, yes, that's the cocktail, I think, that would make that would make entry into any job um, better for everybody, you know, that's for right. the person that's working there and their peers and their supervisors and, and everybody. So And I think on that um, also surrounding yourself with people who aren't afraid to tell you when maybe you're getting it wrong. Right. Right. Um, somebody told me 
lately, uh, you know, sometimes you have to be the race car. Sometimes you have to be the pace car right now. You're the race car and you got to pace, right? That's hard to tell somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was so grateful for it. There was another example. I was in a, uh, a peer group, so not, not within my company. Um, but just others in the, in the, uh, the general area here, we came together for a leadership conference and at the end, somebody that I trust and care so deeply about, he walked up and said, Allison, you just made a really good point in that room and you diminished it with the way that you communicated it. And man, my initial perspective was to br- you know bristle a little right. bit. Whoa. Yeah. And then I thought, oh my gosh, what a gift. He's being honest. He's yeah. telling me when I'm not quite getting that right. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that's not a female male thing. That's just a make sure you've got people who are going to be straight with you yeah. who have your best interests at heart and are going to tell you the hard stuff. Yep. Well, I'm on a lot of questions. <laughs> Allison, thank you so much. My gosh, you bring so much just value and experience and great stories and you're humble and smart and you're doing the right thing in a space that you love. Like you, you're doing amazing. Oh, thank so, you. Man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate you coming in and sharing your stories with us and, We wish you all the best of luck. 